Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Juanced, The show that challenges popular conceptions, thinks critically, examines independently, and most of all, seeks nuance. Each episode features a different guest. We'll dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, tech, culture, and more connected to Israel and the Jewish world. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land and welcome to Juanced, the show that brings you a nuanced exploration of Israel, the Jewish world and beyond. I'm Benny Shoulder. I'm Dan Pfefferman. Uh, thrilled to bring you another great episode of the show. Before we get going, I'd like to give a good shout out to our audience watching us today on Facebook Live. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. For those of you listening later in the week on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts and all the other podcast platforms, know that there's a live video version of the podcast, which you can check out weekly. Uh, don't miss out. It's available on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Juan's podcast. Check it out when we record or watch on our YouTube channel, Juan's podcast, as well as our website. You guessed it, www.juanced.com. Also, make sure you are following us on Instagram. We are at Juanced and on Twitter at Juan's podcast for all the latest updates and episodes and announcements. And of course, Subscribe wherever you get your podcast, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher. What are some of the other ones? I don't even know. Uh, FM Player. Uh, Where, wherever you're getting your podcast, uh, daily dosages of podcast, and please leave us a five-star review. There are rumors that it might somehow make a difference. Heard it makes a difference. Indeed. What's going on, man? All good. Rabash. Rabash. Hey. Good, man. Good to see you. It's been a long time. Yep. Our guests at this point are confused. There's this, this Rabash name, and then they're looking on the profile of the event, and it says, well, then, Ben Shalom. Can you split screen us so that we are? I will be happy to split screen, but if anybody else joins the Zoom, I'm going to have to go back to gallery view so that. Uh, Got it. The only important thing is that I am Rabash and not rubbish. Not rubbish. Certainly not rubbish. Yes. Rabash. Rabash is your, your nickname, your army nickname. It's just the acronym. It's my nickname. It's the acronym of my name, Reuven Ben Shalom. Also, if you would have ever been a great Talmudic rabbi, you would have had a great rabbinic acronym. That's right. He would have been the Rabash. The Rabash. The Rabash, yes. Or, or the Rabash, because it would be like Rabbi Reuven Ben Shalom. <laughs> so uh, Rabash graced us with his presence. Uh, the past couple of weeks, we uh, decided to do um, sort of a... a ad hoc um, two two part series we might even do a few more focusing on different aspects on the kind of mini summer war that we have every couple of summers here the the conflict that we had with Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Gaza for the past two weeks I heard it referred to today on the radio as a milhamonet milhamonet that makes it sound so cute I know awful uh, the best the best word is round we like that word round, another yeah. round like the, boxing it is like boxing. It's like, it's like UFC. It's just an MMA match. It's there's no mm-hmm. consequences. Um, I'm just sharing as we. I'm just sharing as we go here. So yeah, the the round of fighting, uh, the milchamonet or the I don't know how you would even translate it into English. Mini war. The mini war. The mini war. The um, sad. The sad part is, is that it is probably best translated as a round yeah. of. Of, of, absolutely 
But remember, terminology is no joke. After the war in 2006, we learned that it's critical to, to name it, to coin the right term, or else we don't do the right things. So I have a question. Is there like a drawer somewhere with it? Is it like a, a, a piece of paper in a drawer where the IDF has given names to future operations, such as like the National Hurricane Center in <laughs> Miami has a, a list of the names of future hurricanes? They... they and how can I get my ideas on that list? Because I how do how do how did we come up with those? I don't always remember. There's a joke that there's a computer that does it, and of course, uh, randomly generated. Mm-hmm. Clearly not so, because it's always has to do with uh, something happening at the time. Always a very very Jewish and Israeli reference that no one will, else will understand. Yeah. That it's impossible to translate, <laughs> and that even if you try to translate, it comes out very bad as far as PR, like this wall thing. Yeah, that's walls are in right now. So yes, it depends who you're trying to convince. That's right. Um, So um, yeah, you know what they should do, and I don't know if this would be seen as to um, to to cheapen something that is is very obviously quite serious, but to get the public more involved is um, open it up to the public to suggest. Mm -hmm. Ames. That's an awful idea. It is an awful idea. That's one of the worst possible ideas. It would just be. I mean, you you would get half the people coming up with like very peacenicky type names, like you know, Operation Last Operation, or. Well, I don't know. When when we did the food episode at the the deli a few years ago, he uh, a few weeks ago, he asked us to name his hot sauce. I mean, I guess that's a little more innocent than naming. uh, You got to follow up on that, by the way. Yeah, I wonder if I won. Well, my son technically he named the hot sauce. this guy's hot sauces are named Gehenom and Dude Chemish. He was, he was looking to name his third one, which had a bit of a tropical twist. Anyway, before we get going in the show and before we, we properly introduce our guest, uh, just a quick announcement. So everybody check it out. As you all know, Juanst relies on the popular support of listeners like you to keep the party going. Uh, what I mean by that is that we rely on the generous donations of our listeners to make sure that we're able to source the best guests and to produce the best content possible. So if you'd like to become part of the show and make a one-time contribution, you know what? Don't make the one-time contribution. Consider being a regular contributor on oh, our Patreon. I like, I like that. And if you're cheap about it, you can make a one-time contribution too. We'll take anything. We'll take anything we can get. Uh, that's on our PayPal. For more information on how to donate now, visit our website, www.juanst.com. And we encourage you to become one of the many listeners we have in, I think, over 120 countries. 123 countries keeps rising every time so uh there's uh some lady or some dude chilling in the solomon islands listening to juanst as wish, we speak i wish that was me <laughs> <laughs> i swear to god Ruben, if you could just give it up and uh for like a week and go to the solomon islands you would do it right no hawaii but like any random island at this stage <laughs> that, that, really works matter. that works for me yes anyways so, even though who knows maybe our, our israeli dna won't uh won't bear it. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> so to having uh, sitting with us today, Rabash Ruven Ben Shalom is a cross-cultural strategist and a columnist, and he served for 25 years in the Israel Defense Forces as a helicopter pilot and in various international relations positions as a reservist. Rabash commands the IDF International Cooperation Division's Operations Center during times of contingency. He also teaches cross-cultural communications, say that four times fast, at the Israel Defense College and IDF School of Military Diplomacy. And he is an associate at the International Institute for Counterterrorism. Rabash. At the IDC, right? At the IDC. Welcome yep. to the show, man. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, what have you been up to uh, with this cross-cultural 
communications. Uh, you, you basically started a, a business um, consulting on, on your years of experience in the IDF since you left uh, the military. After many years of doing it, actually doing it and seeing all the mistakes that we Israelis make, I decided to, uh, to try to preach it and teach it and train it. And that's what I try to do in civilian capacity and military. Um, honored to be now in the staff as a reservist and in the National Defense College. I try to teach seniors there how to communicate better in English. And also in the business world, from construction sites, believe it or not, to banks, everyone needs to know how to communicate better in the international arena, especially, again, with our unique Israeli DNA culture. What, uh, bef before we dive into the heavy part of the conversation today, what is it? I mean, um, you, when, when we met, you were serving, you were heading the military cooperation with the U.S. military. All, that's right. And that's our, our biggest ally and our biggest partner in, in everything we do. And, and so that's a very busy position. Um, I was helping strategize for the U.S. military in the Defense Department. So you and I uh, had the pleasure of, well, I had the pleasure, I don't know about you, working together uh, quite a bit. Uh, of course, I was a junior officer at the time, and you were already a senior officer. Um, but what are some of the highlights of things that Israelis do or don't do that don't always translate well to working with, uh, with foreigners? Well, first, the interesting thing is that many people think that it's focused to Americans or every, every culture is a different uh, problem. I think what's unique is that we Israelis stand out that we're so different in many aspects that it's relatively easy to teach because all we need to do is teach Israelis how to just more be attuned to some kind of generic international uh, way of doing things. And that works. Um, mostly, I think we're also known for being very direct uh, that comes across as being very rude. So it just sometimes it just shatters the, you know, building the trust and relationship. It's so shocking, so surprising. We like it. We think it's genius. It saves time. It, you know, it's best to be direct, but it's sometimes it's uh, sometimes it's difficult. So and and many other nuances of actually getting the message across, or more more correctly, achieving what we want to achieve. Uh, of course, we're very passionate. You know, we have so many excellent attributes, we Israelis, but in 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 doing what we need to do to get there, sometimes we uh, step on minds. Well, well, give us an example of, of something classic, you know, that in, in your experience that an Israeli would do, uh, you know, that, uh, that you run across. The best is, I think, uh, that our brain is calibrated in such a way that we think that the world is linear and it's a very simple graph. It means if I have a certain amount of time that's allocated to me and I need to achieve something, Many times it's to get my message across, for instance, to explain to you why we are just in Gaza and everyone doesn't understand us, then, then this, this uh, formula in our brain tells me as an Israeli, utilize that time as best as you can. The other guy can shut up for all I care. That means I will talk and talk and talk. I will attack fast. I will never let the other side get anything across. So I forget that the whole idea is communication, which is probably what I'm doing to you right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> is we asked a question. It was good. It's okay. Is that something that, that's done on purpose, or is that just like oh no, oh no? Again, again, really, from my experience. And by the way, we should say I'm a dual Israeli American citizen. I was born in the United States. Uh, from my experience, Israelis are so passionate about international engagement. You know, with very close allies like the United States, but but worldwide, we love the, the collaboration. We love to travel. We love to host guests here. So there's so many positive things about us. 
and and many times I'll tell you we, we, we even go extra than we're supposed to even when it comes to like operational security we love to share we love to you know do things together we just we 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 we're not like others that are very calculated and measured as far as every word that comes out of our mouth and that's sometimes the problem so it's not on purpose we just go for it you know with all that passion and then make mistakes that sometimes can be perceived by the other side as maybe not being polite or worse and this is kind of what you're encountering with trying to explain to your Emirati peers how how to do business with Israelis. Um, partly, partly. I mean, it, it's something that um, I think people who have lived in multiple cultures and who know how to speak, you know, you know, uh, Israelis love to say I speak English or or Americans, you know, I speak Hebrew or this. But until you've really lived in a culture and, and th- there's a difference between speaking a language and knowing how to communicate across a culture. Right. And this is this is what you what you do now, and this is something that I think you and I, in our interactions with with many foreign uh, you know officers and, and diplomats and attaches, etc., um, some people are more attuned to this, um, and, and I think you definitely are. Uh, I, I'd like to think I was, but it, it's it's things you pick up, and and yeah, I, I've noticed Israeli, just native Israelis, love love to talk more than to listen, and, and so in the end, I'm not sure how much you pick up on on the the subtleties or, you know, answering questions that are asked versus, versus what it is you want to, um, to actually say. Um, in fact, we can, you know, let's, let's circle back to this a bit later when we talk about our messaging, Israel's messaging and its, its supposed um, uh, failures in the, in the international media arena, uh, because that is something we can definitely loop back to this on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe, maybe before we get there, I want to just go back to a line in your, in your bio. Um, wh- what exactly is a time of contingency and does now qualify as one? Well, I think so. My bosses in the reserves did not think so enough to call me in for this operation. Uh, so many people ask me, what did you do during the operation besides write columns and interviews? I sat at home and complained <laughs> that they did not call me in. So, but so, for us in Israel, time of contingency means... Uh, not a period of calm or what we call routine security, but heightened or more than that, batash, batash is the acronym, bitachon shotef, routine security. And as I said in the past, it used to be peace and war. Now, peace we never have, of course, but but I would say uh, times of lull or calm or arrangements or whatever, where nothing's really happening. Then we invented this period of um, campaigns between the wars. So you have every few years, a big war, Sometimes an operation like this, but the campaign between the war, all these things that we do uh, in a clandestine way, nobody knows, things are happening all over the Middle East. In fact, we're always at war. Israel is at war since our existence. So I think it's just playing around with terminology, but but in general, just to answer your question, it means when we're not just hanging around and doing uh, regular visits, but you know something serious is going on, we open up the headquarters, call in reservists and do stuff. Is, is it... This is kind of a silly question, but it's, do we actually have contingency plans? Does Israel have a, if this happens, we will do this on all sorts of different fronts or? Absolutely. Or is it more Ooh. kind of reaction? Yes, yes. this is this, is this is that point that as a, as a reserves colonel, I think like what should be my appropriate response to shape the perspe- <laughs> perspective of our, our friends and our enemies? Or should I just tell you the truth? Uh, no, but uh, seriously, of course we do. And I think we're getting better and better at it. Seriously, I mean, 20 years ago, you know, we were, we were, of course we had plans, but it was less structured. 
Today, it's extremely structured. So when Israeli officers, planners get together with American and British and Australian planners and exercises, we use the same methodology. We, we, it's, it's good planning, good contingency plans. But I shouldn't say, say, I shouldn't say but, but when, when, when war breaks out, when something happens, everything is always different. So I think here, the unique culture of Israelis kicks in because nothing will be like, like the assumptions written in the first page of the plan. So since everything's going to be different, we have to do things on the fly. Sometimes it's throughout the plan and just to do something totally new. So our plans are also many times flexible so, to enable that. And sometimes we just toss them out and do something else, which is good. Does it drill down to the resolution of, of kind of predicting future scenarios? And like, did, oh, did, yeah. did anybody predict this one? Well, of course, <laughs> it's, a, it's a, just another round. It's like this boxing match and we're in round five or six right, or seven. Yeah, absolutely. What's that famous Mike Tyson quote? Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Right, exactly. Um, no, the, the way, the you way, know what I'm saying, though. It's like, I, I know what you're saying. The, the way it works and the way you teach, um, you have to have a contingency. You have to have a starting plan uh, of, of what it is you're referring to, the people you need to call up, the positions you need in place, the coordination and, and communication mecha- mechanisms you need going, whether it's logistics or spokespeople or medical or whatever it is, and, and you know, even beyond the, the actual fighting. And then what you do, and I hope I'm, I'm not saying too much, I don't think I am here, um, you train surprise scenarios that the people being trained don't don't know what's going to happen so you don't tell everybody ahead of time guys uh we're going to pretend you know hamas did this and syria did that and hezbollah did this and and and, and then you you practice and 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 this is where you know I, i think we've had conversations about you know in the context of of um what police should or shouldn't do right in 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 you know when we talked about what happens in the u.s and how they respond to emergencies and what you need to do, and this is just on an organizational scale, is you have to, you know, the organization needs to know how to get together. It needs to know in general what it's going to do, but then it has to be nimble to to know how to adjust, how to turn the ship quickly for any kind of scenario that pops up. And that's something you can practice. It's something, you know, like we had last week um, or to, uh, last week with Stephen Popper, and we talked about envisioning different scenarios. You 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 plan for a whole broad range of scenarios so that nothing is really surprising. You know, you're not going to have in a war in Israel, the, the Dutch are not going to send warships to, to conquer Akko, right? That's not going to happen. I don't happen. even know if the Dutch still have warships. <laughs> of course they have warships. Um, but, you know. They, they had a badass Navy in the 17th century. Of course they did. The, but any kind of, 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 um, how, how do you, you know. Reasonable scenario. Yeah. Any, any kind of reasonable scenario. Correct me if I'm wrong here. You, yeah, you yeah. plan for and you prepare for and you practice. I, I guess my, if I'm going to really say it in like a Dougaly sense, is it, did anybody foresee the the this you know the the Arab population of Israel getting so involved at the mm. same time? And did anybody foresee that you know the the butterfly effect or the domino effect of where we were in Sheikh Jarrah, the Temple Mount spiraling into this, and then Hamas taking advantage of it and like that's a good question and i think a sensitive question because if the answer is yes then that could question the decisions made by our leadership which is being talked about right now in the press as far as en- enabling some things or you know i'm not going to go to the extreme of saying anything was done on purpose but 
you know, you could always criticize and say, looking back in hindsight, you know, maybe we weren't sensitive enough in this or that. Maybe it was a mistake to put up these fences in Damascus Gate and if we took them down anyway at the end. So we, we, it's a lose-lose situation, actually. But, you know, it's really, it's really hard. But as far as the, the basic idea that we could have this kind of uprising or, or riots, uh, yeah, I think we experienced this in the, in the year 2000. We, we do have a problem with memory, I think, public memory, sometimes organizational memory, because, you know, it happened. Um, if I can just skip to something totally different, in the 2006 war, we had this campaign of, of uh, extracting American citizens and international citizens, but I was involved with the American citizens from Lebanon. So I came into this headquarters together with the Americans, and I, sh I held up this chart where they had the 24th MU, the Marine Expeditionary Force, and all its alignment in the Beirut port and the operations officer there, they were sort of like, where did you get that? You know, operational security. I said, it's from 82. You guys did the same thing in 82, <laughs> the same unit. And we, you know, we do this a lot. So, uh, so I think it's not necessarily that two weeks back, any one of us expected it to be at this scale, but the, the tensions are there, the problems are there. The, I would even say more than external threats, these are bubbling issues in the Israeli society that we know we didn't tackle yet. Yeah, and and I would be uh, shocked if if our Shabak, our internal security service, which is supposed to gather intelligence internally in Israel, was not aware of. Again, you you can talk about the magnitude of something, but its existence, the fact that tensions could erupt. I mean, they like like we were t we talked about last week. There were tensions bubbling in clashes in East Jerusalem, um, incitement from both Hamas and from Lehava, a right-wing Jewish group, you know, um, inciting um, uh, random people being beaten, you know, uh, in different places. And so I, I, I doubt anyone was shocked by that it happened. By the intensity, I think a lot of people were taken oh, yeah. by surprise. Interestingly, and inter yeah, I, no, I certainly was too. Um, I've heard serious people um, serious, serious journalists that, that I respect as analysts also, um, they're convinced that the buildup from our side and the, the what we think are maybe policing blunders or insensitivity were, were on purpose to tank the, um, the coalition that was going to unseat uh, Netanyahu. Uh, I really hope it's not true, but um, th that serious journalists are, are, are writing it and saying it is, is, is something that makes me at least pause and, and think. Well, I think what gives me pause to th first of all, I'll say to that that those are serious allegations. Absolutely, and you would need serious evidence to back them up. And, and I don't think you're going to have it. But but uh, what I think what is more serious than the allegations is that reasonable people, uh, lastly, you know, yourself and myself, and and maybe you, Ruben, I'm not sure, but it's that we look at that scenario and say, oh yeah, I could believe that. That's saying something about the credibility. Of, of the situation that we're in or, yeah. or, or, and, and, and it, and I think that that's kind of the takeaway that I have from it, which is, you know, the very fact that I don't look at that and say, no, absolutely not. Right. That's crazy talk. That's, there's no possible way. It's like, well, I don't know. I don't know. Um, and it's not even about the politics. It's just, that's the moment we seem to be in. Although it comes down to the politics. Speaking of, it was funny. I was, I was, I listened to uh, Fareed Zakaria on CNN regularly just cause I think he does a good global news take and he was talking about trends in American politics. And I said, Oh, that sounds exactly like what's happening uh, here, here in Israel, as far as um, uh, something we discuss a lot that, that politics seems no longer about issues and ideology, but just about uh, 
tribalism, tribalism. and uh, loyalty to the leader. Um, we have a problem with, you know, we're so polarized now and the, the hatred for Netanyahu on one side of the political map is such, and it, it's, it's natural. He's been in office too long. It's just, I think it's natural at a point like this where people, people that don't like him are fed up with him. So it brings us really to extreme emotions and his trial. So it, it but like, like you said, I, uh, Benny, I agree that uh, we, can't, we can't just brush it aside as nonsense. We have to take it very seriously. Indeed. Um, let's recap kind of what happened in, you know, in the 13-day in the Gaza conflict, um, if you will. At the end of it, we had about 4,300 4, rockets were fired in 13 days. That's uh, unprecedented. Um, they were of a size, a scope, range, diversity um, that we had not seen before. And Hamas, uh, I, I think, um, to, to its credit from a completely just military perspective, showed that it was able to fire the entire time, meaning, um, and, and, and I'd love to get your Air Force perspective uh, in a second here, we couldn't seem to stop it uh, using air power alone. Um, you know, we'll talk about their symbolic victories in a second here, but, but I think, I think um, that is something that we definitely need to think about going forward that they fired that many rockets and, and with arguably the most advanced military or certainly one of the top most advanced militaries and, and air forces working on our border, which makes it much easier, we couldn't suppress their rocket fire. What's your take on that? First, I think there's a serious problem. Maybe the number one problem in this operation was expectation management. Israeli public, I don't think we're knowledgeable enough. It's not their fault. It's the it's the fault of the military leadership and political leadership. This was not explained. For instance, what were the goals? We just have to assume what the goals were. Nobody came out and told us what the goals are. Hopefully, the IDF learned the lessons from 2006, and they were very clear goals to the military. But my guess is that there was never a goal to stop rocket fire. We can't stop rocket fire. It's impossible. So here again, expectation management for me was no surprise. 2006, I saw it, and I knew that's going to be the case now. You cannot stop thousands and thousands of rockets that are simply buried in the sand, uh, pre-programmed or uh, operated from afar. You press a button and they launch. So you don't see it from the air. Intelligence is excellent. Of course, we have amazing, excellent, but intelligence doesn't go to each and every sand dune and all the rockets in there. And it's a waste of time to start hunting them down. We did, by the way, some, you know, when we saw them, we took them out. So now there were only 4,000, maybe there would have been 8,000. But, but that's the problem. It's a, it's a wrong assumption. It's, it's assuming that we had some kind of goal that we failed to achieve. And that's just not the case. It's not the way it works. And it's going to be worse in Lebanon with Hezbollah. Is, is it something that we're working on? Um, what, what are, you know, as much as, as you can talk about it, sure. think, things that have been publicized, um, will we soon be able to deal with rocket fire in an even more advanced manner. And I'm saying that fully aware that the Iron Dome, which is a defensive system, it doesn't attack the, the rockets until they've been fired, um, is, is a absolute uh, you know, magnum opus level achievement of, of military technology and uh, command and control. Um, and, and, you know, synchronizing between the systems. But uh, yeah. are we working on some kind of, of capability to be able to intercept them faster, maybe before they launch, maybe use air power to, to stop, um, you know, and suppress that kind of uh, fire from, uh, from Hamas or Hezbollah or whoever it would be? 
there's no doubt the organizations that deal with R&D are always trying to be one step ahead. Um, Iron Dome is like the technology of the past, even though it still is amazing. And you agree with me, we stand outside and watch it when it's when we don't have a siren in our city, okay? When right. we can watch it from afar. That's awesome. It's, it's just amazing, incredible. And of course, Israel would have been in a different place if we had not ha had it. Uh, not only many more casualties, but the government would have no choice but to immediately conquer Gaza, which means... Hundreds saves of Palestinian lives too. Oh, it's it, yeah, amazing. So, of course, in a way, if, this, if you take just the philosophical level, it's almost like it creates problems for us because if we didn't have the Iron Go Dome, terrorists fire rockets, you have 100 civilians dead, so you take out the terrorists and conquer Gaza and game over. But, but of course, I mean, that's, we can't operate that way. Looking forward to the next technology, I have no doubt that we're working on new technologies. But again, it's not improving Iron Dome and having another missile for another layer. Because currently what we have, Israel, is a strategy, multi-year plan that we're working on. And by the way, one of the best things I ever saw in Israel is Faring has, has having a long-term plan with, with stages and achieving them. And that is this multi-layer uh, protection system going all the way from you know mortars and short-range rockets all the way to ballistic long-range uh, missiles come, rockets coming in from Iran, Shihab 3s and the like. Multi-layers, multi-systems with the ability to try and shoot and then if you miss, shoot again and shoot again. So really unbelievable. But right now the idea is to take it to a whole different realm. For instance, laser capabilities to have it where it's not only 90% and $100,000 interceptors shooting up. Just think, by the way, financially Hamas wins. You know, we shoot every time. 100,000, 100,000, 100,000. We will go bankrupt if this goes on too long. So, uh, and by the way, we, we keep getting asked, do you have enough? You know, it's not difficult to manufacture them. Of course we have enough, but they're expensive. The yeah. next phase will have to be something like uh, laser systems and to take it to a whole different dimension to negate these capabilities before they occur. Remember that Israel, what we're seeing before our eyes, this is not classified information. We changed our strategy already of waiting for the big war and then taking it head on to this clandestine campaign between the wars where we are eliminating threats on their way. Convoys in the desert, planes landing from different places, yeah. mysterious explosions. This will have to be, I think, the next phase for Gaza you know, using a range of capabilities, some of them not even online yet. What will it be? Will it be a swarm of robotic bees that go in the tunnels and take them all out? I don't know, but certainly we're now working to be two steps ahead. Sharks with laser beams. Sharks. <laughs> Maybe. Um, no, it's, it's incredible. Um, I, I can only imagine the things that, that they're developing now. Um, you know, I've, I've been out of the game for quite some time and I remember the the, the kind of things I was hearing about then already. And so, um, you know, who knows, who knows the, the kind of capabilities, but you're right. And, and you mentioned earlier the war between the wars, something that um, Gantz, when he was uh, um, chief of staff, I believe, defined it. And it's, you know, if you think about it, we really don't have major wars anymore. Um, even just wait. No, because, because that's not the nature of warfare these days. And, um, you know, even with Iran, what do you um, mean by major? You mean like a, so, a, a state actor fighting another state actor, like like us fighting the Syrians in the right, desert? So, so and I, tanks I, what, and went on. And when the Iranian nuclear scientist uh, Fakhrizadeh was was assassinated reportedly by Israel, supposedly by Israel, um, I, I was on TV. I wrote an article about this also. And 
And um, the main question everyone was asking me and the main complaint uh, from a lot of international actors, especially kind of more progressives in the States was this is gonna lead to war, this is gonna lead to an escalation. And I said, the war is already here. This is, right now is what war between Israel, the US to a lesser extent, and Iran looks like. We're doing it, is what you were talking about, uh, Rabash. You know, the, the intercepting convoys, the assassinations, the mining ships, the, you know, um, uh, this is what war looks like with Iran. Uh, uh, the kind of war that you saw in the Gulf Wars or, or things, you know, conventional wars between Iran and us or between Iran, you're not going to see that. I mean, the, the chance it, it could happen, but the chances that something like that are going to happen, you're there right now. This, the war between the wars is the new war for the time being. And um, so I guess... Yeah, it's an interesting thought um, that that this is how we need to move uh, um, against Hamas for the time being. Um, although, you know, and a lot of people ask me this over the past couple of weeks, they're producing their own rockets. They're not bringing in shipments of rockets like they used to. So that's how a surprising, do you, that's a surprising factor that not many people know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, up until... 10 years ago, they were, they were smuggling in rockets through the Sinai, through shipping boats, et cetera. They're making their own rockets. They're starting to remind me a little bit of, uh, of, another, of another group of people about 73 years ago. <laughs> I'm not joking, by the way. I, 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 oftentimes people talk about how the Palestinians have, they emulate in many ways the Zionist movement in, 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 in so many different realms because we're, we're next to them and we're their adversary in many ways. And not so far from where we're sitting right now is Ayalon Institute here in Rehoboth, mm -hmm. where we used to make munitions under the guise of the British, underground, deep in bunkers, uh, with a nice cover story to go over it that was cute, which we tell to tourist groups now. But uh, it, I, I guess in a different scale, it's not so far off from what they're trying to do. Well, in, yes and no, because they are the they are the governing entity in the Gaza Strip. So they don't really, they need to hide it from us. They don't need to hide it from themselves. No, I'm saying the, the, the hiding, it's not. Yeah. That, that line of thought is a little bit troubling for Israelis, but it's <laughs> true and it, and I could take it to even higher dimension. And that is that we're not, you know, the resilient Jewish people that, that had this dream for 2000 years to come back and they're just a bunch of terrorists. They have also long-term goals. They're no less resilient than we are. Sometimes I think many people in the international community even that pretend to support them, they are condescending and disrespectful to their cause. They mean what they say and they plan to achieve it even if it takes another 1,000 years. Absolutely. Even, even there, they're a bit similar to us. Troubling. Okay, so, so let's, let's get right down to it then because maybe, maybe that's the core of it all, which is that if they're, if, if they're in it for the long game and we're in it for the long game, what exactly are we doing? Well, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me, before we jump into the big picture, let's jump into the slightly less bigger picture here. Because um, I want to talk about the Gaza conundrum first here before we talk into the overall, if you don't mind. Um, and, and remind me later, Dan, I have to disagree with you about the all-out war, okay? But you can get please. back to that when yeah, you Yeah, he, he, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, Robert, I was, I was going to see his eyes. He was like, no, oh, man. Yeah. Um, I mentioned what Hamas did. We had about 1,500 uh, accurate airstrikes. We took out, uh, again, and this is all um, reporting from uh, official idea sources. Um, so what, you know, even though Netanyahu and Gantz said there are things we don't know, this is what we do know. 
a lot of their infrastructure was taken out about a hundred kilometers of the underground metro system, which is their their tunnel system. What do they call it? A metro system? I think we call it a metro. Do we or do we call it a metro? It's another foolish uh, decision. It's just a nickname in the IDF. Some people in the world may think that metro means we took out their underground, but yeah, it's just a just a nickname. Their trains aren't working now. Um, we took out that launchers, um, um, you know, intelligence centers, R and D centers, storage facilities, production facilities, etc. Uh, the claim from our side is that it was a significant, um, a significant military operation. Uh, militarily, it was very successful, and yet, and yet, the the consensus thinking is like we said at the beginning: this is a round, and which means there's going to be more rounds, and this does not solve the problem. So. Uh, before we get into the bigger picture of what do we do with the Palestinian question in general, what do we do with Gaza? What can be done with Gaza? What are the options? That was, that was, that was what I was going to ask. Oh, I thought you were talking about the overall Palestinian. No, no, no. I was just, what my, are we doing about Gaza? My bad. Because it appears that we don't have much of a, it, it, it appears we're fighting a tactical campaign as opposed to a strategic campaign. Got it. So I take back my interruption. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Um, what, what can we do about Gaza? Um, it, you know, as good as we are militarily, it does, it does not solve the strategic problem. No, isn't there an idiom kicking the can down the road? Sure. That's what we're doing uh, as far as Gaza. There is no solution for Gaza. Also, I think that certainly Israel can't solve it. Uh, re- referencing what I said before, if you have a terror state, you know, a sovereign state with a terror army with a long-term goal of annihilating us. And it's written in their charter and it said, you know, no peace, no negotiation. There's no, the, the, the incentives are not even financial uh, prosperity, rehabilitation. That, that's not the goal. They don't care. So, so when we talk about a solution, they are, now, they are now in the midst of, of realizing their goals. It's not like they have a problem because we destroyed Gaza. Hmm, they have a problem. We have a problem. Maybe together we can mutually uh, find an agreement. It, it's, that's not the case. They are achieving exactly what they want. Uh, and, and again, patient, long-term, and it's mainly sustaining. It's perpetuating the, the, the crisis, okay? Yeah. Uh, trying to control the flames, by the way. And it's oh, also critical for me to say, because this is a, uh, something many Israelis do not understand, it's not a bunch of terrorists that, uh, that are not uh, concerned if all Gazans die because they are sovereign. They are under some public pressure in Gaza. So they try to control the level of violence and to keep it maybe on the verge of, uh, of a humanitarian crisis, but not all the way because then they'll be in trouble. So it's just enough to keep the international community putting pressure on us, perpetuating the situation. I'll also say that some of their leaders, I think, are just corrupt and all they care about are their fancies, ho- fancy hotels and uh, in the not in Gaza, of course, in Qatar, uh, leading a great life. Many of their leaders are rich. If you check their bank accounts, uh, this also even goes to the Palestinian Authority, unfortunately. But 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 again, so there's no solution because they are not seeking solution. So for us, of course, there's no partner. The only solution is to contain. And that's what we're doing: containing, dealing. Hopefully, maybe, the, uh, and this we will have to discuss, the overall picture of the Palestinian people and if they someday merge and come together on one leadership and then they decide that they're willing to go negotiate with us, that's a different picture under Hamas, never. This is, this is Benny, I think the point, uh, you know, I'd love to hear both of your, your 
perspectives on this. I am stunned that exactly what you said, and I agree with you 100%, um, the international community, you know, let me rephrase that, because I think, I think international governments, and, and here we have to differentiate, um, you know, we, we always talk about how the international community doesn't support us, how the pressure, et cetera. I think something that was very clear in this last round and increasingly in the previous rounds of fighting is that international governments fully understand what you just said. They understand exactly who Hamas is. They understand exactly that Hamas is not looking for a compromise or for specific achievements through then we can sit down at a table and agree to them. Um, and the public led by the John Olivers and others of the world who, who some of them have major platforms, haven't the foggiest. And so you see, you know, the, the, in the, you know, this is why we talk about the media and, and smart media even doesn't quite get this. And, and it, you know, I'm not sure Israeli officials who have been speaking to the press have clarified this point They're you know, or if they do, they make it seem like a, uh, kind of just a, a, a simplistic talking point. They're all terrorists. They want to kill us, and we're the good guys, and they're the bad guys. That doesn't. No, it's, get, it's, yeah, it's an easy. That that doesn't get the point across. But there's the deep point here in that we're fighting different fights, and so there's no compromise. Their goals uh, are, you know, like Rabash said, their, their long-term goal is to destroy us, and this is playing into their thing. And you know, why can't that message come across to people around the world? I, I don't know if either one of you want to jump in on this. So since I have no idea, Benny's going to have to take this. Um, <laughs> I'll give you an answer, which I think a lot of our guests, not our guests, I'm sorry, our listeners um, later in the week when this goes on live uh, are not going to appreciate. Um, but I think that if they search in their hearts, they, they might agree with it. I think that when you're talking about the difference, if, you, if you're differentiating between governments and leaders and people that have been elected or, or, or who are the, you know, they understand the dynamics and the power dynamics of the world and then you're talking about the people, random, everyday, you know, Joe Schmo citizens and, and, and civilians around the world. You're talking about two very different intellectual levels of human beings. John Oliver's no idiot. John Oliver. Trevor Noah's no idiot. Is John Oliver and Trevor Noah have an audience of people who are not leaders of the world. They're running a show. Their job is to produce ratings and to produce a product no that was a television show. What, what they did doesn't matter if it's authentic, authentic or not you, you the, the question is why is that the dynamic and the dynamic is such is because people want if you're talking about trevor noah and if you're talking about john oliver john oliver and trevor noah live and operate in a society and in a place where those are the rules of engagement to use a military term meaning their job is not to come on television and to talk up to people in power. Their job is to come on television and to talk to you, the listener, no, their you, job, the viewer. Their job is truth to, truth to power. Or well, that's power not their job. Or whatever that that's is. a nice catchphrase. That's no, not that's, their job. I think that's how they see their job. I don't know that. And that's an assumption. Of course, it's, it's, both, it's both. I mean, their job is to entertain. They are entertainers, right? They're comedians. But uh, but uh, here, the specifically, I think it's ignorance. I don't think John Oliver did this because he hates us. I think that's what he believes. He saw a few pictures. It looks bad. The baby's dying. Bad Israelis. And, and, that, and that's my, to go back to my point, that, that is my point. It's that they are a part, they're intelligent for their part, for their, for their, for their subgroup. Okay. But they are not 
holding the reins of actual power. They're not a no. leader in the world. They're, they're people that are on TV. They're the jester, okay? And the majority of people, as you well know, are not spending their days in deep pursuit of intellectual truth. They're, they're, they're going to work. They're traveling. You know, they're, they're going and dealing with a family. Life is hard. They're on their social. They're you know scrolling and tweeting and Facebooking and watching Netflix and this and that. And they don't have a lot of time to get into, you know, what are the deep. Uh, no, but the, the but John Oliver and the writers and, and they specifically because I watch his show from time to time and he's incredibly intelligent and they do their research. You know when they attack big tobacco or or you know the Confederacy of taking down the statues of and and race things and police violence. They do their homework. So. Yeah. You know, to, to not understand, you know, I'm still I'm still going to go to the point and I'm going to stick by this, that if John Oliver had gone on television and given you IDF spokesperson talking points. Oh, sure. Yeah. His he, listeners he, tomorrow yeah. would his ratings would tank I, I'm sure. and, and he would be called out for being the most vile things you could by by every wokest person in, 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 in the world. It but would yeah, be bad business for him. But maybe if the talking points were a little better then they would yep. have been different. Or that's what you meant. Uh, yeah. I mean, why can't we have better talking points? Why can't we better explain, you know, uh, what's missing in our, um, can, in our spokesman apparatus that, that's not getting across here? Can I, can I try? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's a combination of a few things. First, I think Hamas are genius and they manipulate this. They, their, their PR campaign is much better than ours. And I'm talking even at the tactical level of, you know, producing these things, staging these things. And we, we saw hire them? I'm sorry. Did we hire them. <laughs> uh, and I didn't see it in this campaign. Maybe it happened. I didn't see it. But in, in Hezbollah in Lebanon, for instance, it goes to the level of uh, storing bodies in refrigerators and then taking them out and dumping them near a, a site to make it look as if Israel killed them. And just they have no limits. The strange thing is, you know, people think that, you know, terrorists are evil. Uh, of course, they adhere to no, bound no boundaries, no moral codes, nothing, right? They, ISIS beheads people. So terrorists can do all that, but they don't lie. So if they show you something, it's probably true. Uh, many of the, image they, the images they show, that's simply not true. They take, you know, uh, they take something that happened five years ago and show it as if it happened now. It's a, it's a PR machine, and it works. Images are very powerful. There's nothing you can do. If someone lives on the other side of the world, he doesn't know Israel. He never visited. He doesn't know what Gaza is. I'll even say more than more than this. Many people that criticized Israel in this campaign now believed they were supporting the Palestinians. And this, right. this was a class, clash between Israel and Palestine. They have no clue that this was actually this enclave in the south controlled by a terror organization that are enemies of the Fatah-led Palestinian Authority. So again, forget about Israel. I'm a little insulted from John Oliver, but it's not that. It's that you guys, if you want to support the Palestinians, right. support the Palestinians against their enemies, these terrorists that actually shot them in the kneecaps, threw them off rooftops, and ousted yeah. them from Gaza in 2007. So it, it's, it's, it's much worse. It's not just why don't they don't understand. They don't understand the fundamentals, the geography, the history. It's total, total Ignorance, and that's even well, that, before that, going that, to the that, realm that of situation is, the situation is very complex and it's super nuanced. And, and, if, and if I only look at the, the issue of, you know, which Palestinian side are we talking about? Are we talking about Fatah and the dynamics between them and the Hamas? And, this and that? it's not it's not made any easier by the fact that that Mahmoud Abbas and Fatah people don't come on TV and state that 
you know, on on on, on right. Christian Amanpour. It's not it's not like they I can. saw Abbas going on and saying, I really hope Israel gives them a beating. They tell us, by the way, oh, they tell us all the time. secretly. You, I hear that from Palestinians. I heard it this week, but not publicly. No, they won't say it publicly no. because then they're considered a collaborator. Look at Jordan. Collaborate. Jordan, yeah. our close friend, right? We have intimate collaboration, mutual interest, really unbelievable peace. Yet overtly, look how they talk. You Israelis are killing babies and, and I don't know, uh, secretly p- plotting to, to take over Al-Aqsa Mosque. You know that's not true. They're lying. It's somehow they need that. That's just like, the, it's like how they're supposed to, that's what they're expected to say. That's what their people expect. Same goes with the Palestinian authority. You know, you know the, the one thing... Um... That, that always seems to get missed here also is, is you know, we're always accused of um, because the, the power dynamics are so imbalanced, right? And it was, a, you have an advanced military, they have rockets, you have, you know, they have 10 times more dead than you. So clearly, and this is something that I think we miss in the talking, we Israel, not, not the three of us uh, miss in the talking points is, is there's a conception and it's a logical, it's, it's logical why people would reach this, this understanding intuitively that because we're so much stronger, then there's no way they could have started it because why would they start a conflict that they literally have no chance to win? Right. Mm. And that's something that I think we're missing in the talking points on, on, you know, BBC and CNN is, is, um, you know, understand going back to the nature of Hamas and what their goals are. Nobody talks about the goals Right. Because, again, if you say that they just want to destroy us, that just sounds like you're like you're just throwing out this shallow talking point. But but to point out the fact that just because we're so much strong, that's why it's ironic here almost because we're that much stronger. And yet they're the ones who are instigating these, these military conflicts every time because it does match their long term strategy. Um, and, and and it's very difficult to explain something like that. And I think that's also partly why instinctively so many people rush to side with with them not realizing who Hamas is, but with them, the Palestinians, um, in this. Every time, you know, violence breaks out. I would like to know, as a citizen of Israel and one who lives here, as I'm sure you both do as well, what is our long-term strategy? Regarding because, Gaza. Regarding Gaza. Yeah. Because, great, okay, Hamas is play, playing the long game. But at the end of the day, I sit here in Israel, and maybe I'm not the most tuned-in guy to what's going on in, 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 you know, in culture and whatnot, but I don't see us having a real honest dialogue as a, as a, as a society as to what to do about our friendly and, 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 and jovial neighbors to the south. And for that matter, the bigger problem, which nobody ever talks about, you know, what to do about our jovial, friendly neighbors to the north. And it seems that those are much bigger issues and much more immediate issues in the case of Gaza than anything else. Yet nobody's talking about it except for me and Dan on June once and, and people and then not, and of course I'm being facetious, but it, it's not something that dominates the, the, you know, and if we were in America and you as an American uh, dual citizen, like I am, you know, this would be, if this was an, in America, this would be front, front page news and the campaign would have been about this. You know, it's yet here. It's uh, even a few weeks ago, we thought that the Abraham Accords were showing us, that this can all be left aside. It's not important. We have this amazing right. peace now established with UAE and all that. So the Palestinians, forget about them. Right. They'll uh, get on the train. They'll, they'll, real, oh, they'll realize that they were left behind, that the train yeah. left the station. And this, in a way, is a wake-up call telling us, no, the Palestinian issue is not going away. They're not going to let you forget. 
By the way, many people don't know that Hamas not only initiated this by firing rockets at Jerusalem on Jerusalem Day, okay, that's like shooting at Washington on the 4th of July. It's more than that, it's that they planned it in advance. And I heard, and I don't know if, the, no, don't know if this is confirmed, maybe you can help me out here, that, that Israel knew that the Israeli intelligence actually warned the government that Hamas was planning to fire rockets at Jerusalem. So that means the intelligence is that good. And they're so, uh, Hamas is so transparent that we understand that that's what they need. We understand that they need this, this right now to boost their image, and then they do it. And then they get exactly what they wanted, which is unbelievable. I, I've, I've heard that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I've heard that. What, ha, have you heard the, some of the, you know, you say society's not talking about this. You're right. Um, the people who are talking about this are uh, think tankers. And uh, I like to call them the, um, the formers. You're a former. I'm kind of a former, but you're, you're definitely a former. Uh, all the various formers in this country. Um, the think tanks here are primarily comprised of formers. Um, and, and they do talk about this, INSS, you know, these kind of... Uh, yeah, wonky people. Wonky people. Um, are you aware of the kind of thought, thinking there is about what we can do? And, and we, by the way, might be Israel. I think it in almost any case has to be Israel with different parts of the international community because we cannot... Uh, solve the Gaza uh, conundrum alone. You know, this uh, This raises a point where I, I thought about it this afternoon and I was sort of hoping you wouldn't ask me, but now that you <laughs> raised this, I think it's important to say, when we say like, what is Israel's strategy? What is Israel going to do? What Israel? What government? What mm -hmm. policy? Does Israel even have a strategy? I don't know it. It's not written anywhere. We can try to analyze what Netanyahu's strategy is and even ask a difficult question. If you Israelis claim that this uh, terror enclave, you know, they're the bad guys, they're shooting rockets at you, how come actually you guys are the ones that are supporting them? You let in Qatari millions of dollars from Qatar. You, of course, let in water, fuel, uh, goods. You sustain the Gaza Strip. You, uh, you actually give them the fuel that they use to drive their pickups around and fire rockets at you while the war is going on. Now, that's such a difficult question. The best answer for that, of course, is most of it is for humanitarian reasons. We're not going to starve them. We could choke them and, and they would surrender in five days. Really, end of story. Because also the Egyptians uh, suffer from them just like we do. But it's more than that. I think that this, and this is very sensitive, not sensitive as far as a military secret, sensitive because it's a political issue. Yeah, I think that this government of Netanyahu actually... Uh, even though once every few years they do sort of say, yes, we're also for the two-state solution. They do not want a two-state solution. They want to push away as far as possible any, any dream of someday the Palestinians realizing sovereignty in any forum, okay, in any forum. And in a way, it serves this government when the Palestinians are split. So divide and conquer. Exactly. Um, now, again, I'm not, I'm not, I want to make sure that you don't think that I said, this is it. I'm saying this is a, a possibility when we analyze the way Israel is behaving in the last few years. And when we sometimes weaken the Palestinian Authority, that they are the moderates, they are the ones that cooperate. I was, I'm almost going to say collaborate with us in security, water. And in a way, we're sustaining the Hamas entity. So, so this is the big issue, because if you would ask me personally, what I think the way ahead is for the next 50 years, it would be to someday see the Palestinians united under a moderate leadership and with international pressure that first, of course, dismantles the terror apparatus, demilitarizes Gaza, hope, wishful thinking, 
and brings them under the realm of the Palestinian Authority, and then having dialogue and peace with some kind of really uh, interesting uh, mechanism. It can't just be a Palestinian state from Route 6 East. That's not that easy, but, but that would be the way forward, okay? So we Israelis claim that we love peace, we want peace, we dream of peace. Right now, there's no, there's no effort going really in that direction, mainly because there's no partner on the other side, Palestinian Authority, also Mahmoud Abbas. It's not going to happen with him. Right. So that's why we're kicking the can down the road, and maybe someday all these things will converge to this kind of uh, partner and dialogue I was discussing. Shiyah, Shiyah. Yeah, right. <laughs> Have you heard the, the thinking, the ideas, um, people like uh, Giora Island, um, former national security advisor, former general, brilliant man, um, who, you know, Gaza is basically a state. Yes. Uh, Sovereign. It, it's got its own territory. It's got governance. It's got the whole deal. Uh, why don't we treat it like a sovereign state? What would that entail? I hear that a lot. I got to tell you that um, I don't relate. To, I think we do, in a way. We do treat it as a state. Uh, we've, we've been negotiating now through the Egyptians, by the way. Many times we say we're not negotiating with them. But of course, we are through a third party, the Egyptians. And uh, last time we were, we were claiming that we're not. Now I think it's very clear. We treat them as a state. Uh, the only thing we don't do is that this state that declared war on us, we don't go and topple its regime. And we don't do it not because we don't consider the mistake. We don't do it because we don't think it's wise. We don't, right, we, we don't, want we don't, to deal with the mess. we don't want to deal with the mess. It's going to be our responsibility. We don't want to govern Gaza. We don't want to lose hundreds of soldiers in the, in, in, in attempting to take it over. We can, but I don't think we want. So, so I think in a way we do treat it as a state, a separate entity, totally different from the PA. So, so in a way, you know, brilliant people, like you said, have, have claimed this. I personally don't think that if we only declare them a state, that's it. We'll be able to deal with them as a state. It's, what, what I will say is that the process that happened in Lebanon with Hezbollah, and that is that Hezbollah more and more took over the government. That right. means it seems like a negative thing for us like Westerners. It's a positive thing because they also assume responsibility for what exactly. goes on. They're very concerned from the threats coming from Israel, and those threats are very clear. If you mess with us, we're going to mess up Lebanon. You guys are going to go back to the Stone Age. Of course, some of that is, you know, Israeli, sure, Israeli rhetoric. But, but yeah, we're going to do serious damage. We're even hinting to, to civilian infrastructure, etc. Hamas, until recently, they had nothing to lose, right? Because they shoot from civilians. Uh, which means that if we shoot back and we kill civilians, more dead babies, more John Oliver anti-Israel rants, right? So excellent. We see more and more now this thing of assuming responsibility, some criticism coming from the population. So I think in a way, they themselves feel like a state are acting as a state with responsibility. And maybe the more this happens, we will see that they are more concerned. Also, if we, if we accept what the IDF says of this huge military success, I believe them, by the way. Maybe we will see now this recalculation of Hamas, that this specific um, round that they initiated was not worth it. And maybe we will see now several years of quiet. Could well, be. I mean, we, you know, I remember the aftermath of Lebanon too in 2006. And we, we came out of it, we, Israel, came out of it feeling kind of sour. What did we achieve? Again, we couldn't stop the, the fire. We lost um, relatively a lot of uh, soldiers relative to, to recent conflicts. And yet there has been 
there has been a peep, but little more over the Lebanese border since 2006. It's been a fairly stable border. Um, and this is what you were saying earlier, that you're, you're very concerned with, with Hezbollah. And we've talked about this on, on previous episodes. The capabilities that they've developed since 2006 are massive. I mean, do you think this was bad? If we ever get into an actual conflict with Hezbollah, it's going to be 10 times worse. And I think yet, that's 10 times. I think it'd be uh, hundreds of times. I, I just threw out a number. Um, I'm not very good at math. But, but the, the point is, is, is exactly to what uh, Rabash was saying now. They have something to lose. And by the way, their popularity in Lebanon tanked because they were fighting on the side of Assad in the Syrian civil war for the past however many years, killing Sunnis. Um, and so they lost a lot of legitimacy in the Arab world. Um, and so... It's an interesting point that people don't talk about. Yeah, they, they, they you know, they're not popular in Lebanon. They're certainly not popular outside of Shia circles. But, but to bring it back to maybe your island's point and, and, and Ruben, what you were saying earlier, uh, Hezbollah has what to lose. There's civilian infrastructure in Lebanon. There's airports, there's ports, there's, there's, there's public logistics. There's, right. Hamas doesn't have much to lose. Gaza is not Beirut. It's not, it's not a modern place. If we were to, let's say, end the formal blockade and, and allow them to build a port, allow them to have civil aviation, allow them to have the trimmings of a, of a state, uh, and let's say that the French were to build those things because they would never accept money from us or our assistance, could they ever be in a place where they would, let's say, not give up their aims to destroy Israel, but say, hey, you know what? We're playing a long game. Let's work on developing our economy for now. Let's work on developing our society for the next 50 years so that we can have that legacy as well. Uh, is there a possibility that they could mature or would they not know how to handle that? I'm sorry to say, but again, that's what I referred to before is a bit condescending because it's not like they're mature. By the way, I wrote a post this week and I said something like, they're that stupid. And then I deleted it immediately because they're not stupid. They're wise and resilient and, um, and, and absolutely not. Even if they do something like that and uh, make no mistake, there will be right now this period of, of rehabilitation, talking about rebuilding and schools and hospitals and everything, and they will build. They will use a lot of concrete that goes in for really building also some civilian infrastructure, but also going back to build their terror stronghold. There is no question about it. So in the near future, as far as I can see, nothing can happen that takes away the mechanisms that we have in place to make sure that weapons don't go in. I was on the Karine, by the way, the, the ship, the Palestinian ship that came from Iran loaded with weapons. I was on the ship. I was in the operation. Not. I saw with my own eyes uh, what it means to have loads of, of, uh, of weapons coming in from Iran. When they want to supply Hamas, you know, they do. Now they do it, of course, with funding, with some that gets through, with training, all that. But if we had any kind of open border or port or something like that that's not monitored, we'd be in serious trouble. Still, this doesn't mean that I'm against rehabilitation. On the contrary, I think the international community should help Gaza do it. I only think that that any international entity or country that, that does it now should feel ridiculous, really. I think they should really feel that they're doing a stupid thing if they play the same game again of pouring money into them, believing it's just going for the rehabilitation for Gaza, because most of the resources are going into manufacturing weapons. That's just the way it is. There's no other way around it. 
has the rehabilitation taken on a political dimension in that let's say you are an unnamed golf country of which you may or may not have relationships with is there a political benefit to saying i'm supporting the rehabilitation of gaza to the tune of one billion dollars and really not focus on where that's going and how it's happening just the, the act of doing it such that they have to they can't put the oversight because that it would compl- complicate their efforts to actually do what no politically I, I, they, they feel obligated to do if if any of the countries i think maybe except qatar um gets involved and, and by the way i mean the uae has already said it want, it wants to help get involved and rehabilitate etc um this has to be a major foreign pol- policy move. And, and just for example, you know, the UAE and Saudi, Saudi Arabia, to a lesser extent, the UAE has made moves to become the dominant moderate actor in the region. So I, it would be hard for me to imagine them not taking that very crucial extra step and implementing, you know, some kind of oversight mechanism to ensure that, you know, I don't know if you can prevent all of it from getting to Hamas because Hamas literally is is it's there. It's the government. Sovereign. It's the government, um, and, and what they don't get, you know, officially they'll they'll hijack and, and steal and you know bully their way to it um, later on. So I, th- I think that's part of part of the challenge here. Uh, I'm just trying to imagine, and you know, Gaza experts must know how to do this. Maybe it means you have your own people on the ground. And they're the ones who are building. Uh, if we talked about ports in the Karine, I think is what fifty thousand tons of weapons that were on the Karine, if I recall correctly, um, which was a major, major, um, you know, a military operation to to stop Iranian arms from coming into Gaza in the time. Um, yeah, that that could be a serious, serious threat unless you have a third party, a neutral third party that everyone trusts that can have oversight over this port type thing. I think even Israel Katz, the, the current finance minister has proposed things like this. A Victor Lieberman, if I He's recall. He's been talking about the port. Yeah. And if you have a port with some kind of uh, inspection mechanism, it could work. I mean, we, at least we Israelis, let's make it clear. We always have to be for rehabilitation and building as long as it has the mechanisms in place that don't have weapons pouring in. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, for those of you who are listening live and watching us on Facebook, you are welcome to drop questions in the chat function. And um, we will try to address them, assuming they're not uh, too silly. <laughs> but you know what? Silly questions are also acceptable. <laughs> um, what are some of the things that you're seeing that are coming, you know, from the public here or from the international arena that you feel aren't understood? Is it to me? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, or to you, if, if you're saying things, Ravash. Are, are there common misconceptions that you notice either from the Israeli public about such conflict or from the international community about this conflict, questions that maybe you're asked or questions that... Well, I I think a common misconception among segments of the Israeli community is that this this narrative that we'll hear from time to time during operations, during rounds like this, that we're resilient, we'll stay in our, our mamad as long as it takes, just finish the job this time as if that's an option. And I think that uh, I'm not sure if people that say that it's coming from, it's clearly coming from an emotional place. It's mostly people that are, that are the prime victims of this sort of stuff, but it's, you know, do they really realize that that's not an option? And then also, you know, the 
sometimes it's just sad and i'm not i'm not poking fun at this at all it's it's just a sad reality in fact of this it's like you'll see you know hadar golden's family come up and say that the, the operation can't be finished until we return the bodies of of our, you know, of our son and, and the captives and this and that and it's like well actually it's going to be finished before yeah. that happens and, and you should probably realize that but it's it seems like there's not a good lot of communication that happens between and, and again uh Robert, you said it's like what government so the, you know the, there doesn't seem to be communication between the what government and 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 these uh these sectors um, and, and it would be nice if we could be mature about it did, did just, our do you, do you think the the leadership here communicated the goals, the achievements, the things that we won't be achieving well enough this time around. No, I don't. I don't think so. Um, what we see recently is they call it like a press conference, and then they changed it to announcement, special announcement. Then the prime yeah. minister, minister of defense, come on and say we will hit Hamas very hard. They will be sorry that they ever fired rockets at us, and that's about it. Okay, oh, and stay in your shelter. Be safe. Uh, no, no, no really deep, uh, you know, messaging going out is what we're trying to achieve, what the goals are. And, and by the way, I do not say that, a, that the leadership has to tell us what the goals are, because then they'll be telling Hamas what the goals are. So then Hamas will know what to expect when the operation will be over. Also, this time, I think the idea EF did it totally different than previous campaigns. Previous campaigns, remember, the goal was clearly stated, quiet will be answered with quiet, which right. means please stop shooting. And if you stop shooting, we will too. That's what we did last time. It was mm -hmm. pretty shameful, I think. This time, it was you initiated this. Now, we uh, turned on our contingency plan. We're going uh, bullet by bullet. We have still a lot of work to do. We don't want to talk about ceasefire. We don't care what they do or don't do. We have our campaign now. That was their messaging. Doesn't mean exactly that that's what they meant. Uh, but they they were broadcasting to to us and to them that we're we could work for another month, you know we don't care what you're doing. So so here that kind of messaging was going on, but absolutely no expectation management. We had no clue. And the, I want to connect to what Benny said about uh, this phrase called "Let the IDF win." The Israeli public many times have this this narrative, like if only the government would you know release the reins and let the IDF do what the IDF knows how to do. They'll win. Or the, or the Americans, right? The Americans need to shut up and let us let us win. Right. right. Biden's that, not a true supporter of Israel if he's advising the government to, yeah. you know. So that is go. not the case. And by the way, that's a whole other issue, maybe not for now, but about the misconception in Israel about the U.S. support that it's always, as they call it, unwavering, unfaltering. And Biden to his administration too. Who do you think is going to replenish our stockpiles? Mm -hmm. the Americans, of course. But here, no, I think, I think it is a serious uh, problem of... Um, expectation management with the Israeli people that do not understand what we wanted to achieve, what is even capable. So right. this, and, but, but remember, we can't blame Israelis. When you see rockets raining down, your, your, your human instinct is, this is crazy. This is a terror organization. We got to wipe them out. We got to level Gaza. Okay. So no, we're not going to level Gaza. That's not the kind of people we are. And we can't stop the rockets, but we can take away many of their strategic capabilities and then make sure that the next round will be further down the road. And when it happens, they have less capabilities. So did we, to talk about the ceasefire for a second, I remember in previous rounds, the ceasefire was, was a, it, after it would be declared, they would publish the, the terms 
right. you know, we would expend their 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 fishing. Uh, what, what do you call it? Fishing zones. Their fishing zones. There would we would open the border at, at, at Rafiach between Egypt and, and Gaza. Well, and allow foreign that workers, for foreign workers, goods to get in, etc. Certain money. Yeah. The, of course, the Qatari money was a part of the previous mm-hmm. rounds terms. Were there any? What were the terms of this ceasefire? Will we ever know them? Are there any? And, and is it just you know? I don't think they've been announced. Quiet I don't will think be answered been by quiet. Yet. Right, and 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 what? So we can't say that we're even in a ceasefire. Yeah, we are. By the way, technically we are. Um, some, by the way, in Israel thought that we should not even declare it a ceasefire, but just say we are uh, doing an oper- operative uh, stop uh-huh. or something. Pause. Yeah. Just to make it like we're not stopping the campaign, we're resting for now, but we're going to continue whenever we want. We, we shouldn't way, call it a ceasefire. We should just cease firing, but not call it a ceasefire. <laughs> by the way, today there were incendiary balloons coming in from Hamas. Right, just a few days ago, the narrative in Israel was this time, you know, we changed the equation. Right. If one balloon comes across, we're going to show them. Uh, balloons are coming in. Did we launch relaunch the campaign? No, because that's reality. Reality is very complex here, so it's. It's uh, I no clear, no clear answer here. I, I want to, yeah. Um, sure. Something Rabbis brought up was an interesting point that is also overlooked here, um, and militarily here. In the past, what you pointed out to right, um, the, the the different demands they they wanted, and then we just ceasefire. Um, in the past, we've started out as saying quiet will be met with quiet, and then we you know you, we attack sand dunes and symbolic targets and you know empty training grounds, and then we escalate over time. So by the end of a week, two weeks, we're hitting bigger and bigger and bigger targets. Here, it was interesting that we started going for big targets from the beginning. And so it was very clear. And, and here, you know, our, our action and our messaging were in, in tandem that uh, this isn't about quiet will be met with quiet. This is, okay, you, you poke the bear. We're going to do what we think we need to do militarily biggest targets from the start and you know we're not doing this so that you stop fire we're you started this because during not peacetime but during times of calm or you know we don't have actual calm but during times of calmer times we can't do all of these things because they would they would initiate a round of fighting so this is one of those okay there's an opportunity because hamas initiated the round of fighting now we can go to this checklist of capabilities of theirs we need to take out, targets we want to start hitting. And it was instead of starting slow and escalating, it was starting big and then keeping it going. And this is one of the the misconceptions. And I pointed you know this out on, on, on Facebook as well. Um, Biden didn't come and pressure us to stop. Uh, it was just we, we basically ran out of targets for now. Then I think you you uh, explained it exactly as the idea of thought process was and what they were doing. The only thing that's fascinating to me is that I could see it. Maybe, you know, of course, you know, I speak to some people that are in the service, so maybe I had more better sources, but the Israeli public did not understand that at all. So you had IDF officers in their headquarters and bunkers feeling very proud of what they were doing, rightfully so, succeeding, and also remember that their mission is extremely difficult because they're not just doing carpet bombing, they're doing precision, precision strikes. strikes. Oh, each bomb has to hit its target with this whole process of, you know, even the, the, the legal advisors in there and ceasing the attack if we see civilians. And so each and every one of those, and they saw huge success. They were going down, down the checklist. They succeeded in taking out, negating strategic capabilities that, by the way, some of them 
the Israeli public does not even know yet, and we will never know because they were destroyed, huge surprises that Hamas were going to overwhelm us in the sea, underwater, on the ground, in the air, and these things were taken out. And then, including some submergible devices, I wouldn't say submarines, but, oh. and then, but notice Submersible craft. But then, again, I'm being a bit extreme, but the IDF officers, after this tw- these 12 days, emerge from their bunkers expecting to be, uh, to, you know, to receive the applause of the Israeli people. And what do they find? Everyone's disappointed. It's like there was no correlation with their sense of success. And it was a success, I, I insist, to the public thinking, you didn't topple Hamas. The rockets continued. You, what, again shot at a few dunes or what we call the... Uh, what is it like these empty warehouses? No, this right. time they were not. They were full warehouses, manufacturing system. Each and every target was a good target, a strategic asset taken out. And, and again, that disappointment is just, you know, it's it's just a manifestation of the cognitive the cognitive dissonance that we have in this country mm-hmm. of of what the reality is that is not communicated very well to the population. Expectations are not managed. They're not set. Right. And the people have a, a near mythical vision of what the IDF is and what it's capable of doing because, hey, you know what? The IDF has actually done some pretty mythical and capable things yeah. in its history that, that this, 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 you know, this nation is very proud of. And, and, and I think for the average person who's coming from a place of emotion, it's, it is difficult. And I find myself in, in, a, in that place very often, like, hey, wait a second. You know, we could do this, like, but we're not doing it. And why aren't we doing it? Because the world is a nuanced place and we're living in the 20th in the 21st century and not in the 18th century. And whereas if we look at, I often think of this in, in, in this, this sort of a parallel, if you look at the, the history of the United States, where, where was the United States in 1850, which is roughly the same age that Israel is now to what the U S was after its independence. And, and, and the way warfare was done in the 18th century around that time, if the U S had, you know, foreign threats on its borders which was the, the, the you know quite the case with the with the scenario with with uh with mexico uh you know you would eliminate that threat that was the way that a war was fought it wasn't yeah capital you know, capitals were conquered capitals were conquered uh and and today it's doesn't matter the world is a much more global place yeah. there's international relations and diplomatic uh, uh collateral to worry about and and it's it's not so simple. It's and and, so co- and conquering capitals doesn't matter anymore because no. because the enemy goes underground literally and continues the war um, forever. It, but by the way, even though this is very difficult for us, we have to be proud that we work under these constraints. This is how a democracy fights urban warfare with terrorists, and it's never going to be easy. Uh, yeah. but, I, but I will give one interesting prediction that I believe that in the next few months we're going to see professional militaries from all over the world flocking to Israel to see how our lessons learned. Yeah. And if to judge by previous campaigns, what we're going to see is we're going to see maybe public opinion not with us here and there, maybe po- political entities are criticizing us, but we're going to see military officers in Israel over the charts and maps and videos. And what we usually hear from them is, guys, this is unbelievable. This is incredible. We would never have achieved this rate of success as far as precision strikes the rate of civilian casualties each one a tragedy by the way each and every civilian life in gaza lost is a tragedy to to call it collateral damage maybe is not even sensitive enough but professional militaries around the world if they fight in iraq afghanistan or wherever fallujah didn't look good after the the campaign in 2004 
And their, their rate, as far as how many combatants are killed compared to civilians, is always worse than ours, probably because we invest so many efforts because we think it's important. We're under the public eye. I, I would even say that in our hearts, we say these are our neighbors that we want peace with one day. We certainly don't want to kill them. The Palestinian people are not our enemy. So all these things together make it, I think, extremely hard. But the successes here were, were in that. So it's not only the targets. It's, it's how we actually manage yeah. this campaign and it will be it'll be learned in the next few months and and you know i i hate bringing this up because it, it's it's like it could come off sounding bad but when you have 1500 airstrikes and maybe 50 maybe 100 civilians killed i mean that's a you know in a, in a very densely populated in a very densely populated areas and and some of those civilians are probably killed by the roughly 800 Hamas rockets that landed in Gaza. Um, that's right. That's a significant achievement and and it is tragic and, and I think you know that that's a point that's often missed because it, it's it's um, you know. It's not something fun to celebrate that don't, we don't, only killed. Uh, Dan, don't read the comment section for a while. I can't see anything in the comment section. No, I mean in the future after after this after what you just said. No, but but it is an achievement. <laughs> it is a military achievement, and, and and that goes to my point. What I was saying earlier that that's why I think governments are far less critical of what we did versus publics because right. publics don't understand this, and governments right. definitely do. Certainly that's why I, democratic governments. That's why I urge people that don't understand this and criticize it. Try to find some military personnel from your country that served here as an attaché, that attended one of our conferences on urban warfare. Ask them what they think. They're a professional assessment. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, most of the things we say here, they they don't sound good, not only from the perspective you just mentioned, but a lot of this sounds like Israeli propaganda. Of course, you'll say that. You're Israelis. You have right. your... But, you know, we're, we're, this, is, this is reality. And I think... Uh, this could be uh, the best demonstration of urban warfare as far as how a democracy should fight to date. Yeah. Absolutely. How do you think that uh, our adversaries and enemies in the region uh, see our performance in this, in this round? Excellent question. I'll start by saying that the Israeli narrative now or the IDF narrative is our enemies viewed very closely what we did in Gaza and now they understand that they should never mess with us, seeing our overwhelming capabilities. Now, you, I think you can see by my body language that that narrative is maybe too much wishful thinking. Yeah. Um, it, it is a huge problem, by the way, observing what the IDF does in one little enclave of terror stronghold in Gaza and extrapolating from that what the IDF would do in other campaigns. Now, this does go into realms of you know, secret stuff that should not be discussed maybe in this forum, but, but Gaza is different, okay? It's small, it's contained, it's an operation. I'll, I'll even point to the fact that I myself was not called in, and I know about other headquarters that did not even transition to the war mode because it wasn't a war. So we were not even challenged like a war would be. So in an all-out war, we would certainly act different. But what you can see, uh, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm happy to make this point because for many years, I could not discuss it. I think it was considered secret. It was many times even edited out of my articles by censors and stuff. But since our prime minister has been speaking about it openly, I can say it now, Israeli intelligence is maybe our key asset now. The penetration level that our intelligence is demonstrating 
in Gaza and elsewhere, all the way to Iran, is so incredible. I mean, you were amazed from the Iron Dome. I'm amazed from the intelligence. Our ability to know, in the words of our prime minister, again, it's my prime minister, not me, that we know everything, we see everything, we know everything that you're doing, everything. That is incredible. So what we demonstrated in Gaza now is that when they launched it, and as Dan, you said, when the opportunity arised, we actually, in a way, just launched another segment of our campaign between the wars to take out some of your capabilities. And lo and behold, we have this list knowing everything that you have, where it is, including the tunnels, the, our ability to know where all the yeah. tunnels were and to pinpoint strike all the intersections and take out 100 kilometers. So I think we, the bombs, you know, with all due respect to the Air Force, excellent job. They took off, they pressed a button, they came back to land, the bombs you know, went to their G GPS coordinates, you know, excellent. I'm proud of my Air Force. The intelligence is incredible. So Hezbollah know very well that we penetrated them too, that we know everything. We took out their tunnel infrastructure that was supposed to be an overwhelming strategic surprise. We took it away. We took away the whole network. Still, still, I, rem I promised you to, to oppose what Dan said. Yes, about, please do. About the all-out war. The next war, I think, will be an all-out war, we, the Israelis, are drifting away as far as our perception um, uh, to thinking that this is the kind of campaigns that we'll see. It's more than that. Is Israel now under um, a, an existential threat? No, we're not. Existential? Who? Maybe if Iran someday has nuclear, a nuclear warhead, now they don't. But the next war will be devastating, will be overwhelming. We will be attacked on multiple fronts. And we learned from this time that it will be inward as well. There's no way around it. And I think the IDF now should rethink, you know, how we find this, fight this kind, kind of campaign. They are doing it. Our chief of general staff declares it. The only gap that we have, that we saw the gap now in Gaza, is the perception of the public recalibrating and having expectation management. And that's something we need to work on. What, what were your thoughts um, on the foreign media building being brought down? Okay, well, I'll be the typical IDF spokesperson, propaganda. There were uh, Hamas assets in the building. Sure. Now, of course, there were Hamas assets in the building because I know because I was there. By the way, in cast lead, I was in the Air Force headquarters and I observed the entire process of planning and striking. And, and I wrote an article about that, about the moral aspects of the campaign. So I know how we do it. So if the IDF struck that building, they were, uh, as they say, R&D and intelligence assets in the building, making it a legal tar military target, you know, that we can strike. I don't, it, I don't dispute that it was a legal or a legitimate target. But, but the, the yeah. question is, was it wise? Was it now, worth? my instinct, no. But do I know the magnitude of the R&D facilities in that building that were taken out? No. But you know what? It could be that the IDF had this discussion talking about the pros and cons. What, what, are we, what heat are we going to get for taking out the AP and Al Jazeera? And, and maybe they had this calculation that it's worth it. And maybe now they calculated that it wasn't worth it. So what? You know how many mistakes like that we make during war? You, in hindsight, I think our, our, our advantage is you know, that we don't go back and say, we were awesome, we were great. No, we have to go back each and every decision. Here, again, legal, perfectly legal. We can't go to ICC for this. But the IDF internally must assess, it. was sure. this worth the blow that we got? And we got a blow. We took yeah. down a, a media tower, okay? 
And that, who knows? Yeah, maybe they were wrong. I can't say. That question is kind of inverse to the AP. Like, what the hell are you doing in that building with Hamas? Well, <laughs> right? You, you assume that they knew. You oh, come that, on. No, uh, you assume that there's a, that there's a, you assume that there's a, a sign on the door that says Hamas R&D. But they're investigative journalists. Three isn't, through isn't, five. If they're investigative journalists, if, if they can't figure out who they're renting the building from, who they're renting their office space from, what kind of worth do they have as journalists? I, I heard I heard someone on the news. I'm not, having, I'm not being that, facetious. I, know, like, I, I heard someone on the news having that conversation or, and they were like, they're investigative journalists. They really didn't do their job. Um it, it assumes a couple things, and I'll play devil's advocate. One, that they knew that these weren't covert floors uh, under different code names and shell companies and all kinds of things. And maybe. Um, two, you know, it's, it's not exactly a, a free place where you get to, you know, I, I don't know what it's like in Gaza. I'd love to talk with someone who knows Gaza, but I, I don't know if it's exactly the kind of place where you can just rent space wherever you want. And No, uh, I would assume they have like a monitor. I would assume so also, and I would assume Hamas can can bully any property owner to give them, you know, a few floors of this building and a few floors of that well, building. It's kind of it's like it's like the, the Palestinian version of the Gambino family. Oh, it's more. It's worse. <laughs> like, like if, if they if they want to, you know, they, they probably told them rent in this building. If they want to do that, they can do it. Yeah. They can say, you know, we think that you should be in this building because that'll protect the offices that we have. Maybe, in this maybe that's what they're thinking was. Uh, or they might not have known. You know, maybe it's not people walking around in fatigues and carrying around uh, different kinds of weapons. You know, those might be hidden on certain floors. I, I don't know. Um, it'd be interesting to find out one day. I think the journalists from AP, they entered the elevator every day with a bunch of people with AK-47s, knowing very well they were Hamas. You think so? I, I think so. Um, but, you know, I'll say that uh, working as a journalist in Gaza is probably extremely difficult. Yeah. Uh, if you report what Hamas do, you're or ousted from Gaza or you're killed, right? Arrested. Uh, it's a terror organization. So people that work there from international organizations, even they know it's a terror organization, uh, maybe they support them in some way, like UNRWA. That's a whole other discussion. I think UNRWA, in a way, sustained the, this terror platform and enables it to continue what it does from the brainwashing of the kids and, and onward. But um, so, I, but I can't give a bottom line about AP. You know, journalists for me, you know, they're they're out of the question, and it's not even relevant to the question of attacking the building. Uh, but all we need to know is that when you see a report coming out of Gaza, you know what it is. It's someone with a gun to his head you know, reporting what the terrorists allowed him to report. That's it. Yeah, yeah. The question should be maybe the international community, the West or whatever, should journalists actually walk into a place like that because immediately it takes away their objectivity. Sure. These are, you know, professional questions. Yeah. I've, I've heard um, they interviewed, I think it was here. I think they interviewed a Westerner who had spent years as a reporter in Gaza for AP and oh, one of the things, uh, if I recall correctly, was that because it's so dangerous, because it's, uh, you know, foreigners aren't going there, they're basically just hiring locals on the ground, Gazans, to, to you know, basically contract report for all of these outlets. But one of the counterclaims was made that this might have been a mistake is because if there was one foreign news outlet that maybe had the backing to stand up to Hamas a little bit, it might have been AP. And, um, I, I you know, uh, Again, guys with AK-47s in the elevator. Well, then that's the question. You know, that, that's the question. And then, the, you know, then you ask, you know, why, why, 
why was AP there? Either they're doing their job or they shouldn't be there. Um, Where do we go from here? Yeah. Million dollar question. Is, is it, you know, we talked about turning Gaza into a state uh, or treating it more like a state and giving it ports and giving it all these things. Does that mean then you move? I, I think you have to move in one of two directions here. And, and one of those two directions, and I'm sure there's a third direction that I'm just not thinking of. Either, you know, you take BB's divide and conquer approach and you say they're just two entities. They're separated geographically. They're separated at this point politically. Um, on, you know, and, and Gaza, as small as it is, could be somewhat viable. Like, you know, there are plenty of very small states. It has sure. access to the sea. Uh, I don't think it has any resources, but it has access to the sea. Um, do you approach it as two separate entities and say, you know what, this is going to be Gaza land and that's going to be West Bank land. And, and it's a different strategy because we have no claims over Gaza and, and plenty of Israelis have territorial claims over the West Bank. Or is the answer to try somehow to bring the Palestinian Authority back into Gaza, which is the, you know, the things that are coming out of this current government? Um, what, what are you hearing on that? What are you thinking on that, on that, you know, divide? I think the first move has to be demilitarization of Gaza. Uh, the last time we dealt with this was, uh, was, uh, Tsukaitan. Mm. See, see, it doesn't translate. Protective doesn't. edge. What, what Protect, is it called? Protective, protective edge. Right? Protective edge. Yeah, it's not a direct translation. Uh-huh. And, and back then, there were talk. There were, you know, there were people that were talking about it, and uh, members of Knesset, you know, issued these pamphlets about it, but nothing really done strongly in the international arena. And I think here, uh, by the way, the phase we're at right now, I think, is that the, the the Egyptian broker or mediator, I think, they're now working out the deals. I think it was first ceasefire. Now, then we'll talk. I think now they're going back and forth and discussing the details. Uh, anyway, most of these are a joke because uh, a lot of it is just like PR stunts by Hamas. What are their claims, for instance? Jerusalem this, you know, uh, ridiculous claims that can't be met. Right. But let's say they do broker something. I think we have to start pushing from the Egyptians onward to the UN and international organizations and any entity that aims to assist Gaza to have it all dependent on demilitarization. That's, I think, the key term we should be using. And and saying it very strongly, like I said before, you're stupid if you continue promoting this terror enclave if it doesn't go to demilitarization. It does not make sense. Of course, the question, how is that done? For instance, some kind of international force. We have a lot of those in the Middle East, and we sometimes Israelis, we, we don't understand the importance when they're established, and then we fall in love with them, and lo and behold, 40 years later, they're still there. I think there could be some kind of international mechanism that goes to this idea of demilitarization, of strict monitoring of the rehabilitation, have all the rehabilitation only done not through money, not through suitcases of millions of dollars, but through construction projects that are directly designated. And I think if we continue in this direction, you can't deal right now with a PA taking over. No, they don't have to. But I think the Israeli government needs to do what they never do, which is sit down and really define a long-term strategy of Gaza and whatever it was is to be rethought, is to be recalibrated. I think that there was like a breaking point 
We discussed some of it today, the, pub, the patience of the Israeli public. It's going to be some patience of the international community. It's going to be our other uh, moderate partners and allies in the region. I think everyone feels like, you know, this time it has to be different. We can't allow it to be just one more round. But as far as like, what is the long-term strategy? Yes, it should be, even though, again, this is not Likud kind of talk, but the long-term strategy should be turning them into some kind of moderate entity under a PA that will maybe someday be a partner for peace. And, and I think we have to remember, um, I'm almost afraid to say this, but um, uh, you know, I certainly didn't make this up. In the 1980s, the PLO refused to recognize this, refused to negotiate, refused to do anything. And now, not that they're Zionists, but they're at least committed to nonviolence. Um, you know, they're not openly supporting terror. I mean, it's, it's baby steps, but uh, it is something. Well, no, there's security cooperation. There, there is very important security cooperation. Um, and, and, you know, I want, I want to combine the two things you said, and maybe in your, in your head they were combined. I just, I think, I think I, I want to make the combination even stronger. I think what we should do is, is state very clearly rehabilitation under this international mechanism that you talk about in exchange for demilitarization. I mean, it needs to be one package. And, and, um, and, and I think that is something that a lot of the region could get behind, certainly the international community could get behind. And it doesn't yet touch on the issue of the West Bank, the PA, or Israeli Arabs, things uh, we're not going to get into tonight. Uh, we'll have a couple, I think we should have a couple follow-up episodes um, on each of those aspects. There's a lot to talk about. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, you wanted to, to challenge me on the issue of, uh, of all-out war. Oh, no, I think I already, I already started. I, I think the next war will go back. I'm not going to say tanks versus tanks, but, but definitely I think it will be back to what we, like the Yom Kippur War. Between who and who? Between Israel and all the threats around us, which means we are not right now at war with Iran, really. But it's, but it's this kind of war that it's uh, the campaign between the wars is just you know stinging here and there. They do it all by proxy, which is very convenient and easy for them. Huh? But I think the next war that's going to be the first we had the sec first and second Lebanon war. This will be the first northern war. It will be attack mi missile attacks from Iran attacks by Hezbollah and using also the, the Golan Heights as another front. So think multiple fronts. We'll have Hamas attack from the south. And unfortunately, I'm sorry to say because of my dear friends, the Arab Israelis, but there will be elements in the Arab community that will uprise. So there are main routes in Israel that will be closed. Again, we'll see mixed cities. So this will be a multiple front challenge that will overwhelm us. Now, it's not going to beat us. Okay, It's not an existential threat. But for instance, we will have thousands of rockets raining down on us daily, not 4,000 in a week, daily, from multiple arenas. And with all our array of defense systems, we won't be able to shoot them down. We're going to have multiple impact zones, hundreds of casualties. Our police will be overwhelmed. So we, on, a, on an individual basis almost, have to prepare for this scenario. It's almost every each man for himself on the home front. But there, the issue of preparedness, resilience, even, I want to say, even as far as how you prepare yourself, your, your own home for, for this kind of war, it's not only the shelter. These are issues we have to think about, which means that we also have to work on the military front 
And again, remember, this will not be like Gaza. It's not going to be hundreds of planes throwing, planes throwing bombs. The chief of general staff, Lieutenant General Aviv Kochavi, has been talking a lot about this multidimensional war. He's also been talking a lot about victory, which is why, by the way, the Israeli public are, uh, um, are saddened to see that this concept of victory was not implemented in Gaza. Where's the victory that Kochavi promised? Mm-hmm. The next campaign, we will see more of these elements that, he sp- that he's been speaking about of this multidimensional war using assets that we've never seen, okay? And multiple fronts using a lot of cyber warfare, et cetera, basing on our pinpoint intelligence that again, where I think we're gonna surprise and amaze everybody with what we know and what we can do, but it's gonna be extremely challenging, much worse than what we, I think most of us right now imagine. <laughs> Got odds for when that's going to take place. I can book my tickets out now. <laughs> the positive thing here is that it's not in their interest right now to do it. I think Hamas, of course, will not have an interest to do it. Hezbollah are deterred and have no interest. The big question will be Iran, since they're playing with all these puppets, these, these right. forward operating bases and all these proxies, when someday, for some, and I don't know what the scenario will be, that they will have some kind of pressure or heat on them, they will turn on some kind of afterburner they will maybe ignite something on the border with Hezbollah. And knowing Israeli mentality, you see that we always respond. Something happens, we respond. Notice that our enemies, when something happens, what do they do? They wait. They, they do nothing and they say, we will retaliate if and when we decide it's appropriate. Right. At a place and time of our determination. Yes. And by the way, they always tell the truth and they usually do what they say. Yep. Um, so we are not like that, which means that the next thing that will be triggered on the border, it could be even a mistake or some kind of rogue uh, um, Palestinian entity that fires some rockets and they hit a kibbutz and then we retaliate and then we're into an all out war. That could happen tomorrow. I hope it doesn't. I didn't intend to scare anybody, but we have to be prepared with this. With this. And how, how does that conflict end? You said it was not an existential crisis yet. It, it seems it's close to one uh, at least that I can think about in my life. Absolutely not. After seeing what we did in 1948 and 67 and 73, 73, I think maybe we were close to feeling an existential threat. We thought we will be overrun. Here, there's absolutely no question that we have full spectrum dominance. Uh, Again, my concern is more the resilience. Israelis, by the way, make this typical mistake of thinking that national security means the army, the attack capabilities, absolutely not. The most critical component of national security is the resilience of the people. If you lose that, what do you have? So, so I think that component, of course, is going to suffer a lot because the home front will be a front with all these impact zones sure. from rockets coming in. But I, from what I know and from what I can only guess, I think that our full spectrum dominance, you know, from the intel to cyber to kinetic capabilities, will enable us to thwart many of these attacks, to sustain damage, but also inflict huge damage that I think, just like we did in Gaza, maybe on a small scale, it won't start yeah. easy. It won't, Lebanon won't start easy. I think after 48 hours, Lebanon will say, please end this madness. In Israel, we have this term called which means the landlord has gone crazy, has gone mad. Uh, so I think we, we Israelis, in a way, have this kind of strategy of you know, don't mess with us because it's like, you know, again, poking the bear. This bear yeah. is going to go crazy. So that could be that could be part of it. Starting strong in Israel's 
um, strategy has always been to try to shorten campaigns. They've been lengthening in recent years. Again, there will be uh, there will be an aim to shorten it as much as possible. Which short and intense. Short, intense, even victory. Even though, again, the term victory is not relevant anymore. I'm not even sure why our chief of general staff uses it. but Because even the concept or the perception of victory is, is very challenging. Because the other side will always say they won. <laughs> Egypt still celebrate their huge victory in 73, remember? Yeah, I've been to the museum. They got yeah. back Sinai, didn't they? Yeah, okay. That's why that was that was the point of their campaign. again. It depends what scope you're talking about. Like you say, Hamas achieved what they wanted to achieve now, right? They, Absolutely. Back in front front stage. Who cares how many babies died for them? For them. So, let, me, right. let me let me ask you because I know that many of our listeners are probably thinking of this. It's in in that kind of a conflict. What do you think the role is of our allies, primarily the United States? Mm-hmm. Where I serve in in the reserves during times of contingency. We deal with all international uh, relations, mostly military, of course, but there are always also influences of the international arena, politically, etc. And we sort of envision these, these um, hourglasses and the sand is trickling down. And like we feel we have a certain limited amount of time during this campaign, for instance, and I think, Dan, you were very right in pointing this out, that we had the back of the international community, politically, at least, you know, yeah. media, John Oliver, okay, tough, but, but this issue of having the support, the back of our, uh, of our allies is critical for us. It's not only a matter of the United Nations Security Council resolution and if they, they veto, veto stuff or not, it's much more than that. It's telling, it's, it's telling the world and telling us, you're, you're right to defend yourself. We have your back. And remember that, especially with the United States, having our back means much more than words. It's actually the backbone of our military. We fly F-35s. And a lot of our equipment is American, supported by the United States. We have collaboration on an array of subjects. And one more thing I will point out, don't forget that in this all-out war I'm talking about, we probably have thousands of American soldiers in Israel, boots on the ground, certainly not fighting as infantry soldiers in the front. We never want to see that. But we have them defending Israel with American systems actually integrated into the American system. So our enemies, think about this. Iran shoots a Shihab 3, they know they are actually targeting U.S. forces with U.S. systems in Israel. This, this is a totally different dimension, okay? Um, this, it's almost frightening to think. This almost takes you to the, the, the realm of World War III because you have the Russians nearby and all that. Very careful consideration, deconfliction, which we're doing as we speak, by the way, with the Russians in Syria and all our friends and allies we, we Israelis matured a lot. It used to be like, we good guys, bad guys, the Americans support us. Now it's much more complex than that. There's a lot of great interest in moderates and uh, yes, playing the international community, learning that diplomacy is a critical tool. As a military officer, I keep reminding that. It's not only bombs. Diplomacy sometimes is a critical component of achieving things. And during the next war, that will be a critical component. So also operating wisely, from the from the military cooperation to the political dimension, it's going to be it's going to be multidimensional, like the chief of general staff says. Yeah, and if you've been paying attention, um, you, you do see this in the news. The the really a, a, what seems like a brilliant campaign of trying to put this scenario as far away as possible, taking out all of Iran and its proxies attempts to set up all of these points. This is, think about this as, as like a chess match, right? Iran is trying to put the pieces in play 
to be able to to launch this kind of scenario that Rabash is talking about. And you hear about constant, you know, Israeli strikes in Syria, Israeli strikes in Iraq, even from time to time, uh, possible other places, even further away in Syria, close to, you know, further away from the Syria-Israel border, um, and, and probably a lot of things that we don't ever hear about. And, and these are all, you know, high intelligence, commando, airstrike type operations meant to push away this very scary scenario. Um, because, yeah, I, I guess maybe maybe when I characterized it is, you know, this is war. What you're saying is war. It's a different kind of war. It's a different kind of war. It's, it's still an asymmetric war. Um, yep. Because our enemies, specifically Iran, have based on the Soviet strategy of rockets as offensive and deterrence tools versus having jets and tanks and things like that, which they just don't have that can reach here. Um, so if you're that listener in the Solomon Islands and you have a spare bedroom. Yes. <laughs> if you want to rent it out to Jewons. <laughs> and, and by the way, Dan, we didn't even mention maritime threats that are going to be extremely challenges, challenging and uh, commando raids inside of Israel. And just think that. War. Think war. That's what it's going to be. Fascinating. Terrifying. Meaning that the supermarket will not be open in the middle of the conflict for me to go and stock up on. Uh, on, on, on I, I still have a stock of toilet paper right here. <laughs> I think I'll, I think I'll keep it for the next war. Keep it for the next one. Um, on, on a lighter note, uh, you still doing uh, musicals, musical productions? <laughs> Unfortunately, not recently. I remember, I remember when we used to do, uh, you know, uh, staff retreats or things like that, uh, Rabash. Rabash is, is, is quite a skilled uh, Broadway-style singer and performer. I'm associated with Encore Education, Jewish Educational Theater in Jerusalem. That's a thing? It's a second family for me. Wow. Did a few productions with them, translated about 10 uh, Gilbert and Sullivan operettas. Good for you, man. What's your Look favorite? Up, check him up. Oh, the Pirates of Penzance. Yeah, I was gonna say. I, oh, I remember you doing a, a rendition from that on one of our one of our uh, team getaways. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. That was a surprise, Dan. Okay. Yeah, I was gonna say you, that. You, you're shocked that I remember that. Yep. <laughs> I have a good memory. You sort of, you sort of, uh, you shattered my macho image. I was gonna say, I'm sh- he's shocked that you brought it up. You, you know what? <laughs> You know what? Uh, I'll balance it out. So what kind of uh, helicopters are you flying? <laughs> All right. No flying anymore. Uh, well, yeah. You stopped flying. You retired from that. Absolutely. I stopped flying when I retired because of medical reasons, but 25 years was enough. Uh, losing also so many friends along the way. When you land for the first time, you understand how lucky you are to be alive. Um, but 23 years in the same squadron, 23 friends that did not uh, wow. have the luxury wow. of landing. So yeah, that's a, a serious toll in my squadron. It was always there. That my, that's why flying was never fun. Mm. So it's, a, it's a mission. It's it's a dedication. It's a you you know you take off. You don't know if you're going to come back. But uh, yeah, I was going to ask if you it, it, because many many pilots that retire will will say you know they they miss it more than anything else in their life. It was like you know another wife or something like that, another another spouse. Do you, do you most, miss it? most spouse. most are? I can't. I don't. But, you know, the other day I saw CH-53, Yasur, fly by, and, you know, there's a tear in the corner of my eye, but, yeah, and a lump in my throat. But Are they going to uh, retire? Miss that? it? No. Are they oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. They're, after 50 years of uh, service in the Israeli Air Force, they're going to be replaced by the new uh, King Stallion, the new CH-53. Incredible, 
toy, I would say toy, incredible machine was chosen over the Chinook, also an amazing helicopter, but this is going to be just incredible, serious upgrade. Uh, also very important for Israelis, Israel's uh, really strategic posture of always having the best, always being on the cutting edge of technology. This will, it's like, it's like the F-35 for the helicopter core. Wow. Um, is, it, is it a combat craft or is it a, what, what, what is its role? Um, yeah, yeah, you know, there are attack helicopters that shoot missiles. This doesn't, it's more, it's called a transport helicopter, but it's more for special operations, long range, multi-service, can take, uh, you know, many soldiers or Jeeps or, or equipment. So really anything, anything and anywhere because of air-to-air refueling. So when we train in Romania, or it used to be in Turkey, but not anymore. But yeah, when, we train, when we train in the mountains uh, of Romania, where we left, by the way, a, a helicopter, unfortunately, with some of my friends up there on the mountain, uh, when you look at the map and you draw the radius from Israel, and we flew there and back, of course, then it just teaches you why we fly to Romania, because those are the radiuses that we fly. We were all over the place. We do whatever needs to be done. Incredible. Um, stupid question. If you are a military pilot, does that mean you automatically have a civilian license also? Can you? No, it doesn't. But, you, but of course, you have so many skills and qualifications that you can relatively easy go on, study what needs to be studied, pass the exams and get a commercial license. So many of my friends do it. I think most of my friends fly El Al uh, and, and other airlines. But uh, yeah, they do it. They love it. And I'm not there. <laughs> maybe someday awesome awesome uh listen it's been it's been it's been awesome i i i'm cautiously optimistic yet also don't be freaking <laughs> pessimistic <laughs> based be. on where the conversation went towards the end but but i but I, but it's important i think it's important that people realize that as well because it's you know it's 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 one of these things where maybe the experience of this is something that I can communicate to people. I had many people that were reaching out to me during the course of, as, as we all of them, sure. You know, are you safe? How are things going? Are you, you know, what's, what's the real situation here and there? And, and there were days where I live in Gedera and Dan lives in Rehobot and we're not on the, you know, mamash front lines of it, but we're close enough that, you know, things happen. Uh, but it's like in the middle of it, you're going to the grocery store and you're, you know, driving to work if you have to go to work and, and, and your you know job has a shelter or something like that it's not debilitating where you're you know literally yet yeah and, and, and but that's the point is it, it's a it's a yet and i think that people should be aware of that um, oh optimism you know. is critical if we don't have that then what's the point but also the public service announcement of like hey you, you know you can't have your head in the clouds really yeah um well we thank you for joining us and uh, this whole thank you. Thank you so this whole much. series, this whole series has been impromptu because this whole conflict was a little impromptu. Um, but uh, we appreciate you shed light on a lot of uh, on a lot of things that we were wondering, a lot of things that uh, our listeners uh, wonder or ask. Um, we were able to to think about different kinds of uh, scenarios here, um, and uh, look forward in the next couple of uh, the next few weeks where we'll discuss other aspects of this conflict. If people want to reach out to you either as a speaker or to do cross-cultural communications training or anything, how can they reach you? Um, we can post it. It's bnshlm at gmail.com. So we'll post that. Of course, you have a website. Uh, and yeah, 
find me find me online easily and we will post all your contact info on the show notes and uh, we thank you Ruven Ben Shalom Rabash for joining us and to all of our listeners we will see you here next time on Juanced thanks so much and stay safe everybody peace and love Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.